the current state of strength and conditioning coaching. This essay is about the current state of the strength and conditioning profession, most of which is practiced in high schools, colleges, and universities, and at the professional sports level. Those of you who are reading this in the far distant future while you drive your flying cars uh, may observe with amusement that all these problems have long since been corrected. If I have even described them accurately here in 2017, and my concerns turned out to be about as relevant to your advanced civilization as global warming. From atop your glacier, you may look down on a landscape devoid of weak, overtrained athletes and wonder just what in the hell I was so concerned about way back in 2017. I hope so. All right, full disclosure. I have never served as a strength coach for a university or professional sports team. I've coached thousands of individuals, but never a large group of elite athletes selected for the program by well-paid recruiters or a draft system. I do not know how to integrate relatively inexperienced freshmen with advanced seniors, how different levels of training advancement within the team affect the organization of the workouts, or how to make sure everyone on the team achieves the highest level of his strength and performance potential while struggling through an ineffective program that focuses on the expression of developed strength and the performance and practice of strength-dependent activities in the weight room and on the practice field, as opposed to the training of strength. The problem is that most D1 and pro team strength and conditioning coaches don't know these things either because a program like this doesn't make any sense. And the only reason it appears to work is because genetically gifted kids who work hard at virtually anything, who are fed and rested adequately, and who do not die before they graduate, will get better at athletics as they grow from being 18 years old to 22 years old. And as a result, some of the worst strength and conditioning coaches in the industry are found at the D1 university and professional levels. And as long as misunderstanding and incompetence can hide behind the effective recruiting of outstanding genetic talent, this problem will persist. I know what you're already saying. Ripito doesn't know anything about the coaching of strength and conditioning at the university and professional level, and he should just shut the fuck up. Okay, I will later. Right now, my thoughts are intended to make a few people think about what they're doing in the weight room. First, a definition of terms. To kick things off, strength is the basis of advanced athletic performance. For all but a handful of sports, the stronger athletes are the better athletes. Power is recognized as the most desirable of athletic attributes, and power is the instantaneous display of strength. Power is dependent on strength, which can be developed for a long time, and the genetic capacity for explosion, which can't really be developed very much at all. Exercise is physical activity done for the effect it produces today. Uh, for example, hot, sweaty, tired, and sore. A workout done to make oneself feel productive just because the workout got done not to be confused 
with an exercise, which is a movement pattern done within a workout. Exercising is just fine for non-athletes much of the time. Training is the process of producing a specific physical adaptation over time. Workouts are the constituent components of a training program. Exercises are the constituent components of a workout. Workouts within the training program are important because of the effect they have on the process. Strength training is the process by which an increase in force production capacity is developed. Practice is the repetitive execution of sport-specific skills dependent on accuracy and precision that result in a greater technical perfection of movement patterns. Practice occurs on the field in the context of the sport, while strength training occurs in the weight room. If your sport is lifting, practice and training must be considered more carefully. Performance is the execution of physical activity in a competitive setting for the purpose of beating an opponent, winning a competition, or setting a personal record. Training prepares an athlete for performance. Workouts within a training program are not performances themselves. The following things are always true. One, strength is the ability to apply force to an external resistance. The ability to apply force to an external resistance, like opponents on the field, the ball, the bat, and the barbell. There is only one kind of strength, the kind your muscles generate when they contract against your bones, a system of levers that interacts with the resistance encountered in your environment. Two, power is strength displayed quickly. Here's the math. Force times distance divided by time. So force times distance quantity divided by time. Power is essential for athletics because most sports depend on explosive action. Power is best measured by the standing vertical jump test. Three, the ability to display power is largely, and I mean largely, controlled by the genetics of the athlete. Explosive athletes are born that way, and it is apparent to the trained eye when they are children. Sprungy little kids that are standouts in youth sports and those of us who played against them remember the embarrassment quite clearly. Some very effective national training programs have taken advantage of this, of this phenomenon by identifying and recruiting and recruiting prepubescent talent and then channeling them into developmental programs that work primarily on technique until the later tanner stages of maturation indicate an anabolic hormonal profile. Then strength training can begin in earnest to take advantage of the kid's athletic ability by developing a strength base that allows for the display 
of their native explosive ability. Four, most reputable coaches agree that after puberty, an improvement of 20% in standing vertical jump over the course of an effective strength and conditioning program is a very generous estimate of what you can do for an athlete in your program. This is why the standing vertical jump test is so valuable. It cannot be very effectively influenced by training. And as such, it is a very accurate gauge of the athlete's genetic potential for power development. This is why we recruit athletes with big standing vertical jumps. Since we can't turn a 16-incher into a 32, then we'd better hire the 32s. The only place that can turn a 16 into a 32 is the internet. Five, just like power, some people are stronger than other people, even before they have been trained for strength. Normally, the untrained guys who come in the gym with a big vertical are also going to walk into the program stronger than the guys with low verticals. Again, genetics, it's just not fair, but we'd better pay attention anyway. Six, to the extent that power can be developed, an increase in strength is the most productive way to do it. Listen carefully. In every instance, the athlete who deadlifts 500 can power clean more than the athlete who deadlifts 200. Athleticism is based on power, and as a result, athleticism is not very trainable, but strength is. And whatever the level of native athleticism, genetic athletic explosive capacity, an increase in strength increases the ability to fully display that level of athleticism. Lots of ineffective wheel spinning in an attempt to increase athleticism merely makes the more effective strength work harder to recover from. Squats, presses, and deadlifts are not just three more exercises we need to include. They should form the foundation of the program. Agility drills are just not very important because they only allow the athlete to practice and display what's already there. The ability that got him hired. The things he already does well anyway. The reason he's in your program. Seven, we know how to make people stronger. It doesn't involve single leg anythings, single arm anythings, sub-maximal lightweight anythings, partial range of motion anythings, or running around the weight room yelling about what badasses we all are. It involves an accurate assessment of the athlete's current strength level and the application of effective training principles that progressively increase the athlete's ability to apply force against the aforementioned external resistance. And this is best accomplished with barbells used effectively. This list of things is why the strength and conditioning programs within the athletics departments of high schools and colleges and universities are so crucial to the development of athletic talent and why so much athletic talent goes undeveloped. A strength increase 
especially the increase in strength that a genetically talented young athlete is actually capable of, has the potential to increase power and performance by truly staggering amounts. At the level of professional sports, strength coaches can't take a terribly aggressive approach to their athletes. We've hired these guys to play for us because they're really, really good already, and we don't want you to hurt them in the weight room. When they get hurt on the field, you help fix them and get them back in the game. If they hurt themselves in the offseason by doing a bunch of CrossFit stuff or mountain bike racing, shit like that, help them with their rehab. Keep them in shape. Counsel them about not doing stupid shit like becoming a vegan or only doing yoga. But don't be showing a Peyton Manning or an Aaron Rodgers how to squat snatch if he doesn't already know how because Peyton and Aaron are just fine the way we hired them. The problem is that most modern strength and conditioning programs that should be developmental rely on the native ability of the high school seniors the recruiter stacks up in the weight room, not the proper use of the weight room itself. They often end up being no more developmental than four years of normal growth. Here are my thoughts. First, the Olympic lifts. The practicing of power-dependent movements does not build strength over the long term, and strength is the basis of power. Cleans and snatches are useful for improving the athlete's ability to convert his increasing strength to power production, but they cannot build increasing strength by themselves because power and technical ability are the limiting factors in performing snatches and cleans. Strength is the aspect of power that is the most trainable, but snatches and cleans do not depend solely on strength, so they cannot develop it unless the lifter is a rank novice for whom anything acts as a strength stimulus. Many junior lifters fall into this category, but for more advanced lifters, snatches and cleans display power, but they do not develop the strength variable in the equation because of the limiting effects of the other variables. Technique must be practiced, especially if Olympic weightlifting is the sport and the ability to explode is limited by genetic endowment. We clean and snatch in preparation for other sports to keep the display of power efficient and to drive power along incrementally so that it keeps pace with increasing strength. But ultimately, power depends on force production. And if you're not strong enough, it doesn't really matter how naturally explosive you are. A lineman who squats 315 can't hit as hard as a lineman who squats 675, even if the weak lineman has a higher standing vertical jump. The college football version of snatches and cleans usually leaves much to be desired anyway. It is possible to find videos of spotted power cleans proudly posted on the web. I'm waiting for a spotted snatch, and I predict I won't be disappointed. Many programs utilize the hang versions of the lifts, which reduces the range of motion over which power must be produced. And correct technique is not emphasized or even encouraged in many cases. 
There are hundreds, if not thousands, of videos on the web that conclusively demonstrate the typical university-level strength and conditioning coach's inability to coach these fundamental strength and conditioning movements. Gentlemen, if you can't teach a D1 scholarship athlete, a physical genius recruited for his athletic ability, how to clean and snatch correctly, and you can't be bothered to learn how to do so, you have no business holding a job as a D1 strength coach. In fact, since there exist so few examples of correctly instructed cleans and snatches in any high school, college, university, or professional strength program, and since it seems to be impossible to convince you that doing them wrong is a bad idea and that you're doing them wrong, I really think you guys should just stop doing them in your programs altogether and focus your attention on getting everybody's squat below parallel and getting everybody's deadlift up over 500 with a flat back. Maybe stop them from bouncing their bench presses off their chests like trampolines too while you're at it. And give their spotters a different way to work their traps. Given several months, perhaps this can actually be accomplished. Functional training. Now here's an interesting phenomenon. Functional training is a fairly recent development in strength and conditioning. Derived from the practice of physical therapy with injured and sick patients, it primarily relies on the use of submaximal weights, light weights, moved over varying ranges of motion in the context of solving a balance problem. The term functional is used because it is thought to be more like normal human movement and therefore more closely mimics the function of normal movement patterns than machine-based exercise. Fortunately, it doesn't take much to improve on machine-based exercises, and in most cases, the ability to balance the body and the relatively light load is the limiting factor in the amount of weight used in the exercises, not the weight itself. The theory is apparently that ipsilateral and contralateral movements are so useful in developing the core, I hope you hear my scare quotes, uh, the core, the muscles that stabilize the spine, uh, that they are therefore sufficient for the production of usable athletic strength to the extent that heavy barbell exercises are just not necessary. Apparently, functional training coaches think that spinal stability is unimportant in a 675-pound deadlift. So the athlete is instead placed in positions of inherent instability and expected to perform stably. Damn the force production, damn the increase in force production, and damn the heavy deadlifts. If it seems obvious that light weights cannot improve strength and that rehabilitation protocols of even dubious effectiveness when used with injured populations really have no bearing on healthy young athletes, well, that's because it really is obvious. Yet many strength and conditioning programs around the country have devolved into programs that produce neither strength nor conditioning under the guise of being functional. It's important to remember that you can fall down while squatting, pressing, and deadlifting heavy weights. 
and you learn not to the first time you do the lids. But the balance problem remains as a factor to be dealt with every time you train, even as strength increases rapidly under the bar. The fact that you don't fall down means that you've solved the balance problem while keeping the focus on lifting heavier weights and therefore getting stronger while remaining balanced. Ah, here it is, the C word. In fact, most functional training advocates would agree that squats are functional movements, but that inherent inadequacies in an athlete's core strength or muscle imbalances or something that's not firing limit a squat's usefulness until these inadequacies have been addressed by something called corrective exercises. The squat is its own corrective exercise, as is every other technically correct barbell exercise, which uses each component of the kinetic chain of the exercise in its anatomically determined role to move a loaded barbell through an effective and complete range of motion while remaining balanced over the middle of the foot. Perfect technique assures that each component of the kinetic chain contributes its correct share of the effort, that using a weight that permits correct technique strengthens all the kinetic components, and that increasing the weight gradually while performing, maintaining perfect technique increases the strength of each component in proportion to its anatomically predetermined role in the movement and therefore within the system as a whole. You know, the system we use on the field in the sport. A lineman who can squat 675 has a stronger core. Core. And a stronger everything else than a lineman who squats 315. Or a lineman who only does weighted lunges. And he can hit you harder, too. Despite this fact, a growing trend within the strength and conditioning profession is to limit the weight with which the athlete trains. That there is a point at which the athlete is something called strong enough and therefore who no longer needs to train for strength. Many schools do not even let their athletes squat heavier than an arbitrary limit. For example, 400 pounds, because he doesn't, quote, doesn't need to. Competence and brass tacks. The ability of an athlete to lift heavy weights seems to be a liability in the minds of some strength and conditioning coaches. If they are courageous enough to venture into the realm of barbell training, they don't allow their athletes to reach their full potential because the weight on the bar looks too heavy. Oftentimes, coaches will brag about not lifting heavy and how they focus on core strength and functional strength and speed and agility movements instead. This is simply a layer of bullshit to cover for the fact that they are not sufficiently competent to coach an athlete to the level of squatting 600 for reps. It takes a diligent, effective, advanced coaching approach 
to work with an athlete who is squatting 600 for reps because he needs to be programmed carefully and coached at a high level of technical perfection. This is what makes the 600 safe and effective for the athlete, the technical perfection. The fact that the coach doesn't know how does not excuse the fact that an athlete with this potential should be allowed the opportunity to develop it, and that's that it's the strength coach's job to do that. And if he can't, he's in the wrong profession. It should come as no surprise that not every strong athlete is good at performing functional movement displays of the type that constitute balance problems in the floor with light weights on one foot. But the question then becomes, how much does light balance work actually contribute to field performance? And does it contribute more than getting a weak athlete stronger? Because if dancing is going to replace heavy squats and deadlifts, there had better be a damn good reason. There are many strong lifters who cannot perform what is called a pistol, a one-legged body weight squat, which is basically a balance trick for a light body weight athlete. Yet, who can still manage to squat 600 and not fall down? And who performs better on the field? The weak pistol person or the 600 squatter? Again, strength is force production. And light weights neither demand nor develop force production. But it is much easier to coach alternate leg dumbbell lunges than it is to coach heavy squats or cleans. Exercises that use one or two joints and very light weights are often, well, rather, really, they're always easier to coach than heavy exercises where technique is absolutely critical. Because if you screw up coaching when the weight is light, nobody knows. And you know what? Nobody cares either. Another aspect of the functional misunderstanding has crept into the weight room. The idea that your strength exercises should look like the field position in which you're going to use the strength. It didn't actually creep in recently. Coaches have been telling athletes to squat with their offensive line stance and bench with their defensive line hand position, which is probably the origin of the football bar, for a long time. I have personally witnessed a physical therapist coaching a softball player by having her slowly perform the underhand swing movement with a three-pound chrome dumbbell. And I have an ungood authority that in preparation for the 2014 USA Track and Field Nationals, the sprinters from the USOTC in Chula Vista, California, were doing hang power cleans, starting from a split stance and finishing by reversing the split with the back foot shifted to an elevated box in front. This was done with straps, you know, hands tied to the bar so you can't get away from it very fast if you miss it. And it was said to be specific to sprinters to help with their start. This eliminates the need for developing a strong clean from the floor, which, of course, is just not necessary. And, of course, this mess of an exercise poses no threat to the wrists, knees, or backs 
of these national team sprinters, now does it? After all, the weight is very light. The myth of full squats and knee destruction finds additional justification here as well. Since no sport except powerlifting, and really this is no longer true in the recreational federations, uh, no sport except powerlifting uses a full range of motion in a judged squatting movement in competition anyway. It is absolutely amazing to me that right now, in the early 21st century, uh, those of you in the far distant future are laughing, I know, there are actually people operating in the field of strength and conditioning who still somehow believe that squatting below parallel injures the knees. I suppose these people also believe that you catch a cold when you go outside in the winter, right? And come back in, you know, the temperature change theory of disease. And that playing with yourself makes you go blind. Well, maybe it has for you people. It may seem reasonable to try to match strength movement, movement in the weight room, under the bar, or on machines designed to do this, to field movements, movements that are actually performed during the sport. But it's really not. It's not reasonable at all. It waters down the effectiveness of the strength exercise, and strength, not field specifics, is the point of squats, deadlifts, and presses. You squat, listen carefully, this, this will help you. You squat with the technique that most efficiently improves your strength in the squat. And then you practice handling your now stronger hands and feet correctly on the field. That's what practice is for. Learning important stuff like how to take your stance correctly and remembering that you're not in the weight room this afternoon. <laughs> Take it to crazy extremes, like shooting a heavy basketball or swinging a heavy bat. This misplaced attempt at specificity interferes with an already difficult to make precise movement that is best practiced under the precise conditions in which it will be performed, because this is what practice is. High-skill, practice-dependent movements, like throwing a pitch or swinging a racket or a bat or throwing a javelin or any other implement that are dependent on the accurate and precise control of the hands and feet are fundamentally different from the basic barbell exercises, which use the large muscle masses at the center of the body working together to accomplish the relatively simple task of keeping a gradually increasing load in balance over the feet while operating through a full range of exercise motion. As a general rule, the lighter the field implement, the more sensitive the motor pathway is to alterations from load. And the heavier the implement, the more beneficial heavier implements might be. For example, a 20-pound shot makes a hell of a lot more sense than a 12-ounce baseball. This is also true of the barbell. With the relatively lighter Olympic lifts that use a longer range of motion being more practice-dependent than the heavier and shorter range of motion squat, deadlift, press, and bench press 
which are used for developing the strength that underlies power. Repetitive practice is for sports execution, and strength training is for strength and power. The two are separate activities, and both must be a part of effective athletic preparation. Field practice is motor skill development, and it must be done in exactly the way you intend to perform this motor pathway in the game or at the meet. One of the problems with functional training is that neither strength training nor field practice is accomplished with functional training. Rather, it's an ineffective attempt to average the two. It's too light to make you stronger, and it's too different from your sport to constitute field practice. It is the bastard child of strength and conditioning, and it needs to stop. Exercise machines don't make anybody any stronger unless they've done absolutely no previous strength training. Even then, they make novices stronger for about six weeks. This is unfortunate for a college student who plans to be there longer than six weeks. Anyone who has been in this business long enough to have seen novice lifters become advanced lifters knows firsthand that while deadlifts can improve for years, leg extensions, back extensions, pec decks, all these types of things, single joint movements. They get strong for about six weeks, and then they either get stuck or your knees and shoulders start hurting. Should be obvious that a strong man can move the whole weight stack more times than a weak man can. A 600 squatter can leg extend the stack and leg press all the plates uh, the machine will hold for 20 rep supersets. In fact, the best way to improve your leg extension and leg press is to get your squat up to 600. Now, the other way around doesn't ever work. And it's extremely important to understand why. Exercise machines isolate muscle groups and work them separately. And basic barbell movements use all the body's muscle mass as a system. Muscles operate the system of levers, the skeleton, right, which moves the loads we encounter when we use our bodies. Machines use only one or two levers at a time, while the deadlift uses all of them while standing on the ground with the bar in your hands and not falling down. Since the whole system can move heavier loads than the pieces of the system can, Barbell training stresses the system more effectively and produces a strength adaptation better than isolation work. Machines remove the balance component of an exercise, the falling down part. This should be obvious. Machines are designed to look like barbells, like the loathsome Smith machine, lack the capacity to train the balance portion of effective strength work. Sitting in a machine, moving a single lever around, lacks so much of what we need to get stronger that almost anything is preferable to that. 
Machines don't work, and machines are therefore undesirable. Everybody already knows that machines are undesirable, since dozens of studies have demonstrated their lack of effectiveness, and yet they persist in the environment somehow, like carp, zebra mussels, and mosquitoes. The most logical explanation for this is that they require absolutely no coaching ability to administer. And they are easy to drive up to limit intensity, thus making the inexperienced or undeveloped coach look like he knows what he's doing. Leg extensions are easier to coach than proper squats, obviously. If the sport coach wanders downstairs occasionally and sees the whole team busting its ass on a hammer strength circuit, he can't help but feel a sense of accomplishment for his kids and a firm confidence in his strength coach especially if he himself personally doesn't know anything about strength training. So here's a little personal story. Machines don't work as well as barbells, and I figured this out at my first job in the business back in 1978 at the Spa International and Nautilus Training Center in Parker Square in Wichita Falls, Texas, 76308. I had been lifting long enough to have gained some strength and some muscular body weight, and the guys who trained with the Nautilus instructor had not gained a pound. So, <clears throat> he left on vacation one week, and I took a little experimental group out onto the main exercise floor and had them squat, bench, and deadlift for a total of three workouts. I gave them no diet instructions at all. By the following Monday, one week later, the least amount of body weight gained was three pounds, and some had gained seven pounds. All were stronger, even on their Nautilus machines, having all been stuck there for varying periods of time. And this was, of course, not a study, but I'm not a scientist, and not everything I've learned has been from work done in someone else's lab. I had machines in my gym for many years, and they were a complete waste of time for everyone healthy enough to lift barbells. Machine-based programs are in fact going away, and one of the reasons is that function, the functional training model is a reaction to the lack of athletic application inherent in sitting down in a machine and operating the levers. It was developed specifically to address the fact that exercise machines don't improve athletic performance. Functional training, in fact, is killing machine-based programs faster than barbell programs are. And for that, I applaud them. Giving choice between dancing around on a BOSU ball with a chrome dumbbell and doing leg extensions, I'll take the dance class because I'm less likely to develop knee tendonitis. But neither of them effectively approach the task of driving athletes toward their strength and performance potential. Perhaps the most tiresome thing to have to explain is why a full squat is better than a half squat. And that numbers can obfuscate the correct assessment of an athlete's true strength. In fact, I'm not going to insult your intelligence with a long explanation on more muscle mass used over an effective range of motion, its contribution to greater strength, and its greater applicability to field performance. 
you all read the excellent papers by Hartman and his team in Germany and the explanations in my books, and if you haven't, you should. Instead, let's talk about why partial squats and partial bench presses are so popular. It's because they can be done with heavier weights. And that's all there is to it. Big numbers are cool, even at the expense, of the truth to some people. If your lineman's 650 was done with three spotters, two on each end of the bar, and one doing the power hug from the back, then the 650 is bullshit. And deep in your little pea-sized heart, you know it, don't you? Even if his 500 bench was helped off his chest by you or a cable tied to the bar, the 500 is bullshit too. Remember those programs where everyone has agreed that heavy weights are not necessary? Some programs haven't agreed to that. What they've agreed to is that bullshit partial movements with big numbers are the key. Now, no sane person actually believes that a 650 quarter squat with three spotters is better for anything than an honest 450 full squat. That it's better for your knees and back to be loaded with more weight than you can really handle over a full range of motion, or that holding a weight over your throat that you can't control by yourself is a good thing. Even with a highly trained, super qualified CSCS as a spotter. No, people, nobody is this dense. All coaches know that stronger is better, that stronger means more weight on the bar, and if they can get away with convincing the uninformed that the 650 quarter squat in the video is really a squat, or that the 500 bench press is really a bench press, they look more effective as coaches, especially to the sport coach you work for if he happens to be of the persuasion that heavy is good. If you have a plausible jargon-dependent, very technical explanation for why your athletes are doing half the effective range of motion with more weight than they can actually use correctly, and why all that outside help with the, with the weight on the bar is really necessary, maybe you'll get away with it. Partials are merely padded data, a lie and a dangerous one. There is no excuse for it, yet it is common anyway. Inflated numbers should be a source of embarrassment for a college strength and conditioning program, not pride. Conditioning, this is the other C word. How long does it really take to get an athlete in shape, quote unquote, conditioned to the level necessary for performance on the field, specific to the sport? Well, not long. How long did it take you to get in shape back during two-a-days, back in high school? Less than two weeks, right? Two-a-days worked pretty well because conditioning is a very short-term adaptation, and it comes on very quickly, and it goes away very quickly. The things that cause a conditioning adaptation at the cellular and physiological level do so very rapidly, and they also have a short lifespan. They do not require structural 
or architectural adaptations like the growth of new contractile muscle protein does for strength, or like the process of becoming an elite marathon competitor does. Strength accumulates because muscles grow. Conditioning does not accumulate beyond a certain rapidly achieved point unless you become an endurance specialist. Some sports require this, but most do not. Anaerobic endurance, like most team sports employ, and the kind of thing team conditioning work develops, is an almost pointless activity after a short period of time. Once it's established, and for every field position, regardless of the precise demands of the conditioning requirement for that position, field practice and performance maintains it quite effectively. Linemen, forward, or goalie, if you're practicing the sport and performing the sport in competition, you're not only in shape for the sport, but you are using the precise skills you need to develop under exactly the metabolic conditions they'll be used in. This process can be efficiently accelerated for a week or two at the beginning of the season for unconditioned, lazy athletes who show up out of shape because conditioning comes on very quickly, and it doesn't go away as long as you keep doing it. After that, it's pretty much just grandstanding. Sprints, sleds, calisthenics, trendy CrossFit couplets that are easy to coach, stopwatches, whistles, look awfully coach-like, don't they? And your already talented athletes derive no skill improvement from what is necessarily a low-skill, high-intensity work exposure. If it is high skill, you can't display the skill component with 190 heart rate and a maximum respiration rate. And they're already in shape anyway because they got that way almost immediately. Making them puke, dunking their tired little heads in ice buckets, and then making them sprint, beating them with coat hangers, or hanging them from hooks through their pecs to watch the passage of the sun may satisfy some primitive coaching urges, but it contains no mechanism for the improvement of field performance for already talented athletes. And attempting to drive a conditioning adaptation beyond what is necessary on the field for the purpose of building excellence in performance reveals a poor analysis of what comprises that excellent performance. Furthermore, all that anaerobic shit has to be recovered from, and this doesn't always happen. The eat-sleep-recover process is quite often overloaded by a poorly designed conditioning program whose purpose is primarily to satisfy the coaching staff's cheerleading needs and not those of the athlete. If the kids are so tired and unrecovered that they can't play effectively and they can't get stronger, even assuming they're going to eat enough, which is a dangerous assumption, then a truly useless activity has been substituted for effective training and excellent performance. If the kids are out of gas by the fourth quarter, you either have a strength problem or a nutrition problem, which should be addressed at halftime. Mashing your athletes into stinking piles of goo with excess conditioning 
will only make the strength nutrition problem worse. Agility training is another popular way to avoid learning how to make your athletes stronger. Many strength and conditioning coaches are now emphasizing agility and field work as the basis of their program. Field drills used to develop speed and agility are the feature of many college strength conditioning videos, and they are a major selling point in many uh, strength conditioning programs that are used to recruit players. Agility drills are merely skill displays that depend on the amazing athleticism already present in your athletes. D1 athletes are recruited because they can run, jump, cut, and display high levels of advanced kinesthetic ability. They are physical geniuses, or they wouldn't be in the scholarship program at a D1 school. Agility drills are merely ways to display their already present abilities. An athlete may improve on the drill itself over the course of a few weeks' practice because all of these skills are learned skills. And natural athletes learn skills quickly and replicate movements efficiently within a very short period of time. That's why they got the scholarship. But unless the sport in which he is competing is cone drills, they do not develop the athlete for his field sport, which is something else. There is very little transfer of skill from cone drill to the field because the athlete already knows how to play the game. That's why he was hired, and the game is not cone drills. He practices during practice and performs on the field. If the sport has an extensive off-season during which field practice is not available, agility drills can be quite useful as a substitute. Football, for example, may only be played in pads for five months of the year. And agilities can enable the strengthening player to stay sharp until the preseason. But agilities are never a substitute for strength training. They can only supplement it as a substitute for practice and performance when practice and performance are not available in the offseason. Cone drills for a couple hours each week lack the potential to improve his performance on the field that an increase in strength always has. However, agility drills allow the strength and conditioning coach to display the amazing athletic talent he's been handed by the recruiting process. Athletes look really good doing athletic drills, agility drills, because that's what athletes are already good at doing. And they require almost no coaching in the sense that the coach can tell an athlete what to do to improve the use of his feet in a cone drill. They're a very effective smokescreen for the ineffective strength and conditioning coach to hide behind if he knows how to line up the cones and yell at his athletes. So, if Ripito's obvious arguments are so compelling and if Ripito knows so, so much more about this than D1 and pro strength coaches, how come, one, how come Ripito doesn't have a job at a D1 school or a pro team and, two, how come these guys, these guys, the ones that have them now, still have their jobs? All right, here's another, here's another funny story. I was asked this question 
at a very high-level military installation several years ago after I had been brought in as a consultant for a new approach to strength training. They had been following a machine-based program provided to them by a very high-profile D1 university strength coach. And seeing the deficiencies in this approach, some of the guys were interested in a barbell program. The questions were asked, and my first answer was, one, I am self-employed. I have been self-employed since I was 25, and I intend to stay that way. I'm not looking for a job at a D1 school or a pro team, and I wouldn't take one if one was offered to me. My answer to the second question was, how come these guys still have their jobs? The answer was, it has to do with the differences in the people D1 University strength coaches and me train. They train the finest athletes their recruiters can find, and I train the general public. Now, it may seem odd that I responded this way since their elite military unit and the D1 football team have more in common than my general public does with either. But my having been in a position to train ordinary people who walked in my gym off the street and follow the process of their progress for many years, sometimes decades, juxtaposes me with high-level coaches in a very interesting way. My people were a broad demographic assortment, young and old, men and women, a few good athletes, and lots and lots and lots of very bad ones. Whereas every D1 strength coach has some of the finest young male athletes in the world in his weight room, 18 to 22-year-old genetic freaks. I had to deal with varying levels of commitment, Lots of my members quit halfway through the second month, while D1 programs have very committed scholarship athletes at their command who cannot afford to quit. So no matter how a D1 strength coach trains his people, they show up, they train hard under tight supervision, and they make progress. Fine young athletes who train hard will make progress, and it doesn't matter how they are trained. If you take a competitive group of 18-year-old men with an above-average athletic endowment, motivate them, feed them well, and do absolutely anything physically difficult, then during the process of them getting to be 22 years old, they will improve their athletic performance. Outside the weight room, these athletes are doing lots of skill work in practice, and their practice is with a more select group than it was in high school. Their opponents on the field are very, very good too. This further obscures the effectiveness of the strength conditioning program. Higher level practice, a higher level of competition, and physical maturation are all happening at the same time. As long as the recruiting staff supplies the raw material, any D1 strength and conditioning program will appear to excel or at least to function adequately. So will the elite special forces of anybody's military if it is screened tightly enough for admission. Under these circumstances, a machine-based, functional training-based, agility drill-based, anything-based program will appear to generate progress for its participants. Growing young men who are fed and rested will get stronger. 
on a Pilates program, on yoga, for God's sakes. Many college and pro-level strength and conditioning coaches look like they know what they're doing when they really don't because they haven't had to. On the other hand, poor athletes with lousy genetics cannot hope to equal the physical accomplishments of D1 recruits and pro draft picks. Guys like me who wanted it for themselves really badly and who want to excel as the coach of similar people are forced to evaluate the various methods at our disposal, pick the ones that work, and ship can the others. I had the time. Forty years as of 2017, for you people in the far distant future. And uh, although I'm not a genius, I'm smarter than my heavy Neanderthal brow ridges may indicate. My evaluation revealed that barbell training with progressively increasing loads on the basic exercises executed over a full range of motion, increased strength, and all of the other dependent characteristics for everybody and for several years if they trained consistently. The experience of every advanced powerlifter bears out the truth of this statement and the testimony of athletes subjected to ineffective machine-based functional training programs documents the time wasted on these less effective programs. If your criteria for an effective way to manage the strength program include running everybody through the workout in under 30 minutes, making everybody vomit, you know, the vomit scale, if you puked, you trained hard. If you didn't puke, you're a pussy, right? Instead of making everybody stronger, the deadlift scale, for example, if your deadlift went from 315 to 505, you got stronger, you know. Screaming and yelling instead of coaching technique with precision and effectiveness, Substituting conditioning and agilities for progressive improvement in basic strength and power? Why, if these are your criteria, I'd suggest that you do a rethink. I suggest that there are other factors at play, such as sponsorship money, the expectations of the alumni, and head coach, athletic director misinformation, pig-headedness, and maybe even stupidity. But this is 2017, your athletes have read this article, and you know what? <laughs> now they know better. I'd like to thank Tom D'Astasio, starting strength coach, for his considerable help in the preparation of this article. Thanks also to Jared Nestlin, starting strength coach, for his valuable input. To Matt Butler for his inspiration. To my friend John Wellborn for his help. And to Dr. Ken Leisner, for some very good last-minute advice.